Welcome to the Endure Stronger podcast, made by runners for runners. We're your go-to guide to get stronger, bulletproof your training against injury, and build resilient bodies for life and racing. We're passionate about serving the runner community, and we bring you the most interesting and accomplished guests and speakers to inspire you and keep you entertained on those long, slow runs. I'm your host, Sam McIntosh, and I'm a writer and a certified nutrition and weightlifting coach. And I'm joined here by Laura Rutherford, a chartered physiotherapist and Pilates expert extraordinaire. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash EndureStronger and on Instagram and Twitter at EndureStronger. You can also join our Facebook community by clicking visit group on our page and sending us a member request. If you're enjoying the show, please, please, please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you have any questions or comments or any feedback for us about the show, feel free to send them to us directly at Sam at EndureStronger.com. Enjoy the show, guys. This week on the Endure Stronger podcast, we interview one of the world's leading experts in strength and conditioning for endurance running, Rich Blagrove. Rich is a lecturer in physiology and program director for the MSc in strength and conditioning at Loughborough University, and he's a former director of the UK's Strength and Conditioning Association. Rich has provided strength and conditioning coaching support to numerous runners over the last 12 years, including several Olympians and Paralympians and world championship runners. In 2015, he authored the excellent and highly recommended book, Strength and Conditioning for Endurance Running. In this episode, we discuss what strength and conditioning or SNC actually means, why all runners should be following some kind of SNC program, how SNC can improve everything from your running economy to your overall race performance, why SNC is your secret weapon against injury, which you should know by now from listening to this podcast, obviously, and why some runners seem to get away with doing no SNC at all. I think most usefully, Rich outlines how you can easily perform some basic tests on yourself without equipment and put together a simple SNC program for yourself to start improving your running today. He's also got some tips if you're more advanced on things like rep ranges and more specific things towards the end of the podcast too. Having an expert of Rich's calibre on our podcast was a real honour and we're super excited to give you a window into his expertise. If you want to know anything more about the techniques that Rich talks about or any of the terms or just generally about SNC for runners in general, we're going to link to his book in the show notes so you can check it out and do some deep dive in for yourself in your own time. For now, without further ado, here it is, our podcast with Rich Blagrove. Hello and welcome to the Endure Stronger podcast. How are you doing, Laura? Great, how are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. I'm quite hot this week. I think last last week I was cold, this week I'm hot. <laughs> Sorry, you always ask, I'm giving you an honest answer. We're here this week with Richard Blagrove, the author of Strength and Conditioning for Endurance Running, the Programme Director for the MSc in Strength and Conditioning at Loughborough University. And in case you haven't heard, Loughborough University is pretty much, well, it's the... The, it's shit hot. the best of the best is shit hot in terms of strength and conditioning and a lecturer in physiology welcome to the show richard hi guys thanks for having me on yo you're very welcome thank you for coming on we're really excited about this one because we feel like we're kind of carrying the flag by ourselves for strength um, <laughs> strength training for runners and we're fighting the fight but we when we found you we realized that you've been doing quite the crusade for a pretty long time <laughs> I, um, I, yeah, I guess I've tried to. And yeah, maybe we'll talk a bit about how I go into strength and conditioning and uh, the runners that I've worked with. But um, yeah, I've been lucky with the, the runners I've worked with over the years for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great place to start, actually. So tell us a bit about your background, like 
uh, were you a runner? Like, were you always a runner? Are you a runner? Do you still run a lot now? And how did you get into strength and conditioning? Yeah, um, I guess my own running career is a good place to start. So, I mean, certainly when I was a teenager and when I was at university, I was a competitive middle distance runner. Um, and like, I was okay. I saw, I think I ran 152 for 800 meters. Um, you get a lot of injuries, so particularly Achilles tendon. And that sort of got me a little bit interested in strength and conditioning, actually, because I always seem to be in the physiotherapy clinic. Um, I always seem to be at home doing rehab exercises and stretches. And um, <clears throat> I actually quit running when I was only 21 and became a rower. And I was kind of naturally, I was a bit better at rowing because of my build. I'm quite tall. And I did that mm-hmm. for four years up until about 2008. Um, trained with the national squad for a couple of years, which was a fantastic experience. And and then I decided it was time to go and get a job. Um, <laughs> trying to be an elite full-time sportsman. And I worked at St. Mary's University for uh, almost nine years. And I ran an undergraduate degree in strength and conditioning there. Um, and some of you listeners probably know what the environment is, is like down at St. Mary's in that it's a bit of a hub for, for long-distance runners. Um, like they used to have the National Centre for Distance Running Performance there. And so it's kind of retained its culture since that got taken away and the funding got removed. So they've got this big group of runners. Um, like Mo Farah obviously trains down there when he's in the UK, all the way through down to like your, your kind of recreational runners and, and first-year uh, students. Mm-hmm. And so, um, because I was a strength and conditioning coach, it was sort of quite natural for me that I had this passion for distance running that I started working with uh, with distance runners and worked with a lot over, over that nine-year period. Um, and I was lucky enough to work with some that represented Great Britain at the Olympics, um, one or two that won medals at major international championships. So yeah, it was yeah. a great experience. Um, and I left there in 2017, took up a job at Birmingham City University. And I've, since, yeah, since kind of 2015, I guess, I've sort of got a bit more into research and so my PhD was looking at the effects of strength training on distance running performance. And yeah, I've been working at Loughborough since last May. And I'm kind of trying to carry on that sort of theme of research at the moment. Yeah. And if our listeners don't know, like if they don't keep up with anything in like runner's world and th- things like that, if you there's always if you're a good running athlete and by good, I mean, you're at an elite level or you're on Team GB, they spend at least some of their time in Loughborough at some point in the year, either being tested or, um, you know, or being coached by one of the experts that are there. So, so, um, I guess we should, we should start with, um, at, at the beginning. So what is, for anyone who's not sure, how would you describe strength and conditioning to the average runner? Um, I think if we take the sort of, so the UK strength and conditioning association is sort of the governing body, I guess, in this country, or at least the accrediting body, so they, they would define it as any kind of training activities outside of sport-specific skills, which are designed to try and enhance athletic performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess a more simple definition for runners is it's, it's anything they're doing, really, that isn't running. And so on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis, they want to train for a 10K or train for a marathon and perhaps run a personal best. So they're obviously engaging three, four, five, six times a week, whatever, with their running um and so that will usually be set by a technical coach so uh, sort of running coach 
And then usually anything else they're doing, so that could be something simple like stretching, could be foam rolling, all the way yeah. through the, the things that um, that we're probably going to talk about. So lifting weights, doing plyometric training, um, prehab type exercises, and yeah. sort of conditioning for specific tissues to try and offset the risk of injury. Like I, I would, I would call any of that strength and conditioning. So it's the sort of non-technical parts of the sport, I guess. So, and therein lies the problem in that when we try and talk, the great thing about runners and the worst thing about runners is that they love to run and they love to run. And Laura can speak to this more to the point where they hurt themselves doing it because they carry on doing it, even though they're in pain. Oh, it's so true. Yeah. And trying to get them to stop doing it when they have mild to sometimes pretty moderate pain that's bothering them throughout the day is, is pretty hard. Or just even to try and tailor the amount that they're doing, to yeah. try and, you know, maybe substitute a little bit of the running to bring in some extra S&C stuff would be, uh, yeah. be a great balance. That's that's the difficulty. S&C is not running. And you always see sort of like mm-hmm. a face drop when you say that. They're like, well, then I'm not interested. Like they'll do yeah. Incredibly long runs, um, really tough, mentally demanding tempo runs, running around in a circle on a track for an hour. They'll do all of that. But they, when you say strength and conditioning, they're like, mm, nah. I'm not really doing that. <laughs> so strength and yeah. conditioning is basically all, everything that is not running. So you included, which is interesting, bands and foam rolling and that sort of thing, um, along with strength and conditioning. Why is it important? for runners so probably especially since you've worked with such a high number of of really good runners why is it important for the average runner who just wants to you know complete a marathon or they just want to run like a, a sub four marathon or they just yeah. run marathons or 10 case for fun why is it important for them <clears throat> it's um i guess it's two main reasons so the first one where most of the scientific evidence lies is around improvement in performance so we, we know that um, if we do a, some, a strength training program in particular for a period of two to three months, we generally get an improvement in running economy, which is how much energy that we're using at a sub-maximal speed. And mm-hmm. that usually then improves performance as well. And so we've got a fairly good body of evidence to show that. And the other big area that we've already mentioned is potentially it might offset the risk of injury. Um mm-hmm. And I mean, a survey that we did with 2,000 runners as part of my PhD actually showed that that's the main reason. So runners that actually engage with non-running based training activities, so S&C, the main reason they do it is because they believe that it lowers the risk of them getting injured. Um, and the, the evidence in that area from like a science perspective is probably a little bit weaker, but there's certainly some strong theoretical arguments around why doing non-running based activities to strengthen tissues and movement patterns and so on is probably going to lower the risk of injury. Um, I guess a a quick sort of third reason, and I'm certainly not a psychologist, but it's just more observation over the years and certainly with young runners, that I think it gives runners almost a bit of a a kind of psychological break. And there's also a bit of sort of socio kind of emotional component to doing some type of training that isn't their running. And so clearly with, um, so I used to run a a youth strength and conditioning class with with young runners. So the youngest were about 14 and the oldest were about 18. And so there was a group of about 20 that used to come um, each week. And this was, again, when I was based down at St. Mary's. And the big thing the parents used to say was that they hadn't necessarily improved their performance, like a lot of them had, obviously. And um, 
and they steer, steered clear of injury. But the big thing that parents would pick up on is like they just enjoy the session so much compared to their running training. And for some of them, it's kind of it's brought them out of their shell a little bit. Like usually at their running club, they're quite quiet and they're quite introvert, and they sort mm-hmm. of run around the playing field quite quietly and then go home. Whereas in a strength and conditioning session, they kind of have to interact with some of their peer group and some of their friends. And I think that kind of, yeah, mental stimulation and just socialising with other runners in a non-running setting can be can be quite valuable um, if you're doing group sessions, that is. And I've seen it with, with kind of senior runners as well when you're working one-on-one with them that they kind of really just value the sort of mental break from going out running for hours and hours on end. So it's, yeah, it's an area that I can't quote loads of science about, certainly, but something that I've observed over the years that I sort of see as a third big area of benefit for strength and conditioning. Yeah, I mean, and I would say as well, Laura would would agree with this as well because we we don't have the burden of having to stress that scientific research doesn't absolutely say things and we don't have to put these caveats as in like you know the evidence is a bit weaker the evidence is a bit stronger we can just speak to our practitioner experience as a strength coach and as a physio that it does reduce the risk of injury in our experience do you know what I mean and and Laura's as well can speak to how little like I mean look at um the patient that you had who broke his ankle and his the speed of his recovery because he strength trained as well it what it was a quarter of what it usually is for 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 an injury of that kind yeah his recovery was incredible you know from from when he did his ankle and he said to me i really really want to run an ultra marathon in i think it was nine months time after he'd done his ankle in and we were like right so this was a fracture on his ankle (laughs) like a a full-on fracture but he was dedicated and he did all the strength and conditioning and he did his pilates and he did you know all of the stuff outside of it and we did manage to get him there but anyway we go off track a little bit but just yeah. uh yeah showing the value of yeah we're, we're basically to assert that we're okay saying like this is our opinion <laughs> and saying this is right no absolutely and I'm, I'm on the same page as you guys and i sort of have my scientist's hat and my coach's hat and certainly yeah. coach's hat on, i'm on exactly the same page and I think the body of research that's looked at the effects of strength training on injury incidents and injury risk factors with runners, like it's obviously a little bit limited because most of the studies aren't that long in duration. And to get like a to get a proper intervention in place that's going to strengthen the tissue, and then as running volume is increasing, um, it allows the runner to um, to kind of cope with cope with um, the additional volume. Like that does take time. And so if you only have a short study, it's unlikely you're going to kind of see anything. And the other thing with generally the interventions are they're just they're general interventions. And so they'll give every single person in the intervention group the same program. Um, and typically the way that I would prescribe strength and conditioning for an individual runner is um, it's much more down to their own specific needs. So, um, yeah, as, as Laura mentioned there, like if you've got, if you've got a runner who's had a series of injuries around a specific joint or a specific tissue, like obviously your strength and conditioning is going to be geared around trying to strengthen that particular area because we know that previous injury is one of the biggest risk factors for future injury. Um, And so when you do your screening process and your testing and your assessment, you're usually able to tease out, okay, this particular area's got some decent level of robustness, whereas this area here is quite weak and a little bit unstable. And so you kind of bias your programming around the needs uh, the needs of that individual, and then 
again, usually in my experience over a long period of time, you can reduce their their instance of injury. Um, yeah. So yeah, you can, I think you can only take some of this this evidence with a pinch of salt. Um, and there's lots of limitations to these individual studies. That goes with a lot, though, and as because I coach nutrition as well, like it does come down to individual differences, and yeah, that leads absolutely. sort of into my into my next question is when people say. They, either, they say, well, can't you just get better at running just by running? And they usually have someone as an example, like a really high level, elite level athlete who has only ever just run. Um, and you, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer, but also it is, a really easy yeah. one. Yeah, but because you're like, yeah, that's true. They don't do any strength and conditioning or they do very little. Um, but they... I guarantee you, if I watch them run, they run beautifully and with really good form. Um, that's the first component. And the second component, they've probably always run. So they've they've probably done it from a really early age. They might have a parent or someone really close to them who is also an elite level runner who has always had really, an eye yeah, on them running. Well, yeah. yeah, they have um they have the genetic element there, but also just they are used to it and they do it really well. So they do cope with the demands of running. And that's a different conversation of you've been sitting for eight or nine hours a day in the office and then you decide to do a 5K. You have a lot of dormant tissues, a lot of inactivated muscle, a lot of weakness and um, instabilities. It's a totally different ballgame. Um, you can't, you could basically, in, in, a, in a nutshell, you can't get better at running just by running because likely the way that you're running is uh, dysfunctional and you're you don't have the muscle and tissue strength remotely to cope with it would you agree with that Laura? well yeah absolutely and I was going to say we kind of answered our own question there but <laughs> do, you, do you kind of agree with that take on it Richard yeah and I, I guess because my background is slightly different to you guys like a, a lot of the time runners have approached me so recreational right through to elite because they're injured, so that's usually the start point. Like yeah, they come yeah. to you because they've got a stress fracture or they've got a hamstring strain or whatever. And so you build up a relationship with them through rehabilitation initially. Um, and then when they come out of the back of that and they're running again, then they kind of get the value of it all of a sudden. They're like, oh, I don't want to get this injury again. So therefore, mm-hmm. like, can you write me a program to um, try and re- reduce the risk of me getting it? So I guess that's slightly different to you guys who, yeah, maybe work working with um, healthy runners from the start and you're trying to encourage and sort of persuade them to get in strength and conditioning. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I largely agree. And again, coming back to like the quite big body of evidence we've got around um, improvements in running economy and performance, that if um, you can certainly get better and improve your economy just by running, uh, that's quite mm-hmm. obvious. But if you didn't ever do strength training, I would certainly... I'd certainly argue that you've not got that kind of same ergogenic um, effect from a training modality that you could you could have done. Um, and I think with the, the the injury aspects, because injuries are just they're, they're so complex in nature. Um, like you've mentioned, some of the factors that go into sort of predicting injury, that you'll certainly come across a lot of runners that only run and they don't get injured. Um, but usually the, com- the commonality is that they don't really change the volume of running very much. And so yeah. I think about even someone like my mum, who's been running now for about 25, 30 years, like she's actually barely had any injuries and she's, she's well into her 60s now, bless her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but she, she runs three or four times a week and she ran three or four times a week 25 years ago and she runs three or four times a week now. She doesn't 
change the duration of a run. She doesn't really change the pace of them. Um, and so that's why she avoids injury because she's not she's not kind of nudging up the the load too much. Um, but I think most runners, particularly those that have got some sort of performance goal, like they're always going to be looking at progressive overload. Like, can I increase the length of my my long run on a Sunday? Um, can I run quicker in my interval session? And so you do that too quickly, and mm-hmm. your risk of injury goes up quite quite fast. And I don't think people realise. Um, that usually most tissues are kind of right on the borderline between picking up some sort of niggle and pain and being healthy. Um, and so I think strength training has got a huge role to play in just trying to push that ceiling and capacity of the tissue up. So when you do nudge up your intensity or your volume, it's able to cope with it. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really key for that. Absolutely. Um, I was doing some of um, some of the reading in your book and um, I was really interested in some of the stats that you were talking about in terms of the amount of people that get injured through strength training and the amount of people oh, yeah. that get injured through um, running. I think it was two to four in 10,000 will potentially pick up an injury for weightlifting, but it's like 37 in 10,000 for running. Um, and I think, yeah, there's quite a perception and almost a fear, I would say, for runners to start doing some strength and conditioning work for fear of injury because it's just the worry that's out there but actually the stats kind of tell us otherwise it's a a lot safer perhaps than what we think Mm. yeah as and I think people like like to me stats like that now are sort of yeah of course like it's obvious but I completely appreciate particularly for parents of young distance runners why they might look at somebody lifting in, like with a big bar, a, a bar on their back with loads of plates on on each side, and they're like, "Wow, that person's going to get injured if they squat all the way down." And it's like, "Oh, they didn't." Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just because then they're, they're not used to that environment and watching that type of exercise. But as you say, like if you actually look at the injury epidemiology data, um, mm-hmm. injury prevalence for distance running is quite high, and it's yeah, nearly all of them are overuse injuries. Um, injury prevalence in most game sports particularly collision sports is really really high Um, you should play rugby so can attest to that (laughs) yeah (laughs) in in a gym and and injuries are really rare um like you always like i always give the caveat that um sessions should be in a safe environment and they should be coached and supervised by somebody that's appropriately qualified but like I think even in um, even in public gyms where people are just sort of left to their own devices, um, like injuries are still fairly rare um, based on the, the data that we've got. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of people don't necessarily always understand that, that they see people lifting the big weights, but they don't perhaps know about all the time that's been spent with body weights or with, you know, broomsticks, you know, learning to get into an overhead squat position or, mm-hmm. you know, all of the stuff that comes beforehand before you even start doing the loading and about the quality of the movement. So, yeah, is that something, I mean, I we know for, because we've been reading your book, but um, yeah, could you just tell us a little bit about that process for our listeners? What's the, what process are you talking about? Do you mean the... Um, going from no strength and conditioning to, you know, that process, but then when you're lifting heavy weights, you know, there's a lot that's between the two. So Yeah, so mm-hmm. in in simple terms if some like obviously I think at at this point someone might be thinking okay yeah so strength and conditioning can protect me from injury and that sort of thing but it would just be a case of me walking into the gym by myself I can't afford a PT I can't afford a coach or even not even walking into a gym they may just be looking for something they can do at home what would you say is is a good starting point for the average runner who who doesn't really know what they're doing or where to start 
Yeah. As, as Laura said, you've, you've, you've got to start with body weight initially. Um, and to use the comparison, it would be like somebody saying today, I'm going to do the Great North Run in September. And so tomorrow I'm going to go and run 13 miles because I want to train for the Great North Run. Like, right. They might not get injured, but they'd be very, very sore the next day. And yeah. <laughs> if they tried to do it again, they would, they'd probably pick up some sort of injury fairly quickly. So you use that sort of analogy with strength training. Like you don't say, well, I'm going to start strength training because I want to become a better runner. I'm going to go in the gym and I'm going to squat 100 kilograms. Like it's just... <laughs> yeah, yeah. You would crumble underneath the bar. Um, yeah. So it's exactly the same principle. Like you have to start off... Um, fairly light and fairly easy and the important thing for me as a strength and conditioning coach is that um is that we just get runners moving well and we just get them operating through a, a decent amount of range um under body weight initially just to build up their movement competence and so like usually when i first meet a runner and we go through an initial sort of q a verbal screen I would then do a series of tests and assessments. And part of that assessment would be a movement screen where I just evaluate like how, how competent they are at doing some basic movement skills. And that allows me to, it kind of indirectly allows me to look at um, imbalances, asymmetries, like tightnesses around specific joints and motor control and stability and so on. But it also gives me information about how quickly they're probably going to be able to load up some of the basic exercises. Um, and I think um, just to interject, like because if someone was thinking, well, that's great, but I can't afford to hire Rich to come and watch me do that stuff. <laughs> yeah. You do actually have um, this movement screen in your book, Strength and Conditioning for Endurance Runners, don't you? And key points to look out for. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess if if people don't want to, can't afford to pay for a trainer and or a strength and conditioning coach, and don't want to buy my book either. <laughs> um, <laughs> Starting off with a, a, a basic set of exercises and trying to find some information on, I'm reluctant to say the internet, but um, a, a, reliable, a reliable website like your own, for example. Um, thank you, thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. um, so somebody that's trustworthy and you know, you, know, you know that's qualified, then you can find some videos and some key sort of technical points around the sort of skills that you need to practice. So you, you mentioned some of them there, um, like an overhead squat, for example, like a basic hinge, which could be on two legs or, or one leg, so a kind of arabesque type movement, um, a basic lunge pattern, and then some sort of step up as well. And then a couple of exercises for the upper body. So usually for me, I, I use a pull and a push. So something like an inverted row and a press up. And yep. just trying to work through range, um, trying to keep alignment, particularly at ankle, knee and hip. Um, trying to keep fairly stable and balanced while you're doing it. So that means you've got to stay on the right part of, uh, of your foot as you're doing the movement and trying to keep a good posture. So a fairly neutral back position. Um, and Which you also go over in your book as well. Yeah. As well, yeah. That kind of too yeah, much around the scalp as well. Do you know what? Having a brainstorm like live on air right now is that we are actually developing parts of our, uh, part of our website at the moment and we could probably do like a video of these movements like a, a minute video where we go through the movements yeah, with some stuff maybe that we could link to in the show notes by the time this comes out because yeah, it really is it, it's quite simple like we have what's laura was really happy when she saw that part in your book because we have as part of our run stronger program like what we call an mot and it has um body weight and stability tests um a strength test and um 
a hopping test as well and it's really simple and it's it's one of these sort of things um that we can get anyone to do when we talk about our program is the first part of it is they just have to hop on one leg 10 times and then hop on the other leg 10 times and just record themselves doing it and the we, amount of information you can pick up for that is just incredible yeah. we were just like so like is, is that it and, and we were like yeah just do that and video it and send it to us and when we see it we're just like okay we know why you got that injury we know why you've got pain there that sort of thing these sort of simple diagnostic tests and we can like i say we could probably do a free version of that yeah sure um because it can be really simple to identify those sorts of things so yeah we'll link to that in the show notes yeah of course yeah Sorry to give you guys work. It's one of these, like, it's just added to a really long list that is just keeping me awake at night, but it, it can't, it's, it's all worth it. It's like when you spend more money on a credit card that's already nearly maxed out, so mm-hmm. I might as well, you know? <laughs> and, um, yeah, we're pretty, I should say we, I'm pretty good at getting this stuff done. Laura's uh <laughs> yeah not so much Lord, not so much with the organization <laughs> okay so yeah that's a great starting point is they, these diagnostic tests for runners so they can just at least see some weaknesses and then maybe get some body weight exercises because usually what's really great about these diagnostic tests is that if the, if you have a poor performance on one of them the simplest way to get better is to repeat the test in some way isn't it well yeah once you've been educated once on you've been educated on so if you if you can't hop on one leg for 10 reps in a row then it's simply a case of saying, okay, well, keep your your spine neutral and keep on the ball of your foot and do that every day. Try and go for, if you can't get 10 now, go for five. And if you want to get five, get 10. And once you get 10, maybe you can go back and forward and side to side on each leg. Once you can progress it from the actual test itself, which is cool, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, all those basic movements that I mentioned before, there's there's kind of regressions to all of them. So you can make this more simple. Um, so it's not not quite as complex, and also re- reduce the load a little bit for things that's, that involve landing, like like you mentioned. And for those for those people who kind of know what they're doing, one thing that drives me mad on um, some of the Facebook groups is that people are, are saying, "Oh, I've started tra- strength training and I really like it," which is great. And then they um, someone comments who's interested in doing strength training, like, "Oh, what do you do?" And they post like a picture of their routine, and it's uh-huh. like bodybuilding.com like bicep curls mm-hmm. and like this sort of thing and it's like that's not running specific strengths like that it's great that you're into strength and i'm that's sure it's not doing any harm just and yeah. but they've picked up um something from muscle and fitness or bodybuilding.com and it's, it's just like that's not really useful and it's just increasing your in- risk of injury in another sort of plane other than running so um the biggest question that we get asked now, I want to hear your thoughts on what exercises, if someone knows what they're doing in the gym, they're fairly comfortable in the weights area. What exercises, say three, would you recommend for them to focus on? Yeah, it's, I always hate saying it depends. <laughs> <laughs> I say that a lot too, yeah, because yeah, it does. Yeah, and like if you look at programs that I've um, sent to athletes quite recently, that they all look quite different. Um because it's sort of catering for their their own individual needs and yeah their own injury history and background and so on. Um, I guess if I had to give some general recommendations, I'd usually usually include one bilateral exercise, so either a back squat, an RDL, so a Romanian deadlift, which stands for RDL, um, or mm-hmm. a deadlift from the ground. And mm-hmm. then um, I usually have two unilateral exercises. And so, I mean, my sort of 
I guess, favourite exercise, if I can call it that. But the one that I often prescribe a lot for, for distance runners is kind of like a dead leg step up, which is sort of a variation of like a normal step up onto a box. Mm-hmm. But if you keep the free leg completely straight, so toe pull tight to shin and your knee fully extended, mm-hmm. like you get all the control and the strength through the leg that's working on the box, if you, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit more challenging. So I'd usually include a variation of a step up as a second exercise. And then, if, yeah, as a third, yeah, it kind of depends. Um, I think the answer I would have maybe given a few months ago might have actually been a bit different to this. But, I mean, based on some of the work that we're doing here at Loughborough with both British Athletics and one of my PhD students, we're kind of just seeing, like we already know that the calf complex is pretty important for distance runners, both from an injury and a performance perspective. But some of the research that we're, we're kind of seeing around the work that's done at the calf compared to other joints and how much um, how much fatigue is experienced at the calf and how that impacts upon running economy and kinematics is quite surprising, actually. And so I would probably actually give something to strengthen the calf specifically, both to improve performance and offset the risk of injury. Um, so some sort of either like high-load isometric calf raise or if uh, the runner hasn't got access to like a leg press machine, like something simple like a single-leg calf raise um, just with body weight. I think if it had been a few months ago, I'd have said something a bit more sort of multi-joint. So something like um, a split squat or a reverse lunge um, or maybe something like a single leg hip thrust, uh, which is a bit more targeted around glutes and hamstring. So I still think that's... Very popular at the moment, hip thrusts. Everyone seems to be hip thrusts. Really? Yeah. Yeah, Um, Yeah. Just to quickly explain to anyone who doesn't know, bilateral um, is just a way of saying both sides of the body. Isn't it? So, yeah, sorry. So, uh, yes, okay. And uh, you, so when you say bilateral, obviously a squat and a deadlift, you're, you're using both your, both your legs in that movement. And anything that's unilateral um, is one side of your body. So yes, apologies. <laughs> no, don't worry. It's just um, I'll step in as translator. I'm just going to let Laura jump in here because she's vibrating with excitement about what you said about <laughs> calves, I think. so. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's just something that I've included in a lot of the Pilates and stability work, The you know, a lot of the accessory work that we do. And even just sort of standing and trying to just balance on one yeah. leg on, in a heel raise, you know, it requires so much of the body to be involved in that. You know, you're getting core activation, glute, all of the upper and lower leg around the ankle, the foot, like everything is activated and the amount of people that can't do it is just is really surprising yeah um but yes so the the calf is where it's at basically i think that's a really interesting that's straight from the forefront of recent research that the calf well from what you said the improvements just in running economy and preventing it from fatiguing as quickly and injury prevention i think in your in your case that's Mm. a lot of it i mean i know that my i mean again this is due to individual differences I broke my ankle really badly playing rugby so my left one's always been really weak but Laura had me walking around like with my with my um heels raised (laughs) squatting with my heels raised um hit like heel raises and then slow back down how long was I doing that for 30 minutes a day for a year Oh, yeah, you've been doing it for, yeah, probably a year and a half now. But I think a lot of people 
don't understand yeah. the how massive the impact of eccentric loading through the calves can be and just what do you mean so, by eccentric oh, yeah, yeah. loading <laughs> <laughs> so there are there are two methods of contraction just for our listeners so you've got concentric and eccentric mm-hmm. um concentric is when the muscle shortens um when it's under load so like if you look at a bicep curl if you were lifting a weight um the muscle gets bigger as it shortens um under that load mm-hmm. eccentric is the opposite so the muscle Lowering. is lengthening under load which is when you're coming down from your hill raise which yeah it which is what you did for me to re-strengthen my ankle after the break yeah, as well as absolutely. occlusions with a band no not occlusions what they're called band aversions inversions and eversions, inversions yeah. <laughs> that's so moving the foot in and out you can tell who's the msk expert <laughs> and who's the, the on here but yeah it's, that's that's actually really interesting for us to know because and um, but yeah laura's laura's excited because a lot of our content recently have been focusing on calves i think that, that people think that um that's all we care about but obviously because laura's clinical experience tells her that with runners they don't have enough calf strength or stability or stability she she comes back to it as like a staple in our programs and it's really lovely to be able to speak to somebody who's you know obviously um doing such high level research and is so well respected and know that you're kind of saying the same things that i've been saying it's really nice to hear (laughs) yeah yeah we're all well educated by the sounds of it so Use a, a blend of the science and your own coaching experience, I guess, to to arrive at these messages. Um, yeah, definitely. You, uh, you gave me three exercises there, which was a bit harsh. If you'd have said five, that'd have given me a bit more flexibility. But... I did think. You no, know, I thought as I said it, I was like, just hit him with. He has to choose three, and there's like five. Five would have been kinder. So the other question that I get that's that's really cool to know the exercises that if if you know what you're doing in the gym then you, those are ones that you can hit and you have an immediate return on investment for for your time the biggest question that i get when i go on podcasts and when i get interviewed is um rep range recommendations and this is again for people who kind of know what they're doing um or they think they think they know what they're doing they, they definitely spend time in the gym and they're getting a lot of benefit out of it but they don't know exactly the sort of rep range and i find that most people for some reason, hit around the 20 range, which I'd like to hear your thoughts on. Um, Or they go to sort of more of a classic bodybuilding split where it's 8 to 12, and they never sort of come out of that sort of rep range. In terms of rep range recommendations, very generally, well, what are your thoughts on it and what would you recommend? I'm in danger of giving you a really long answer here, so cut me off if I do. Um, That's fine. I think... I think a lot of the time when people are using really high rep ranges, the, the rationale that I often hear is, well, it's an endurance sport, so therefore we require muscular endurance. So therefore, when I go into the gym, I need to do loads and loads of reps. But if you kind of use that line of logic, it, you realize how flawed it is quite quickly. Because when like your foot's hitting the ground three times every second on average when you're running. And so if you quickly do the maths and you realize, okay, with my foot striking the ground 180 times a minute and I go out for a 30 minute run, like you're up to thousands and thousands of foot contacts. So if you're trying to simulate that based on that line of logic, you should be going to the gym and doing thousands of repetitions like per set, which doesn't make any sense. Like Bugs Bunny. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess this sort of encapsulates the entire philosophy of, of, of strength and conditioning as an industry to some extent that, when you're working with training activities and exercises which are inherently non-specific to the sport, so we said right at the very start, is anything that isn't the technical aspects of the sport. So if we get if we, if we forget for a second speed and agility drills and, and mechanics and so on, anything in a weights room environment is 
is far removed from the sport. Like it's very, very general. And so you need to frame it and think about it a lot differently. So you need to think about, okay, what adaptation am I trying to drive with this particular exercise, which might help a physical quality that's important for my sport, if hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, it does. A good example for running is that we know that running economy is a really important determinant and predictor of performance. And running economy is underpinned by both physiological and kind of neuromuscular qualities, so the nervous system and the muscles. And so one way that we might be able to improve running economy is by improving how many muscle fibers and how strong the muscle is. And if the muscle can produce more force or can control force better, it improves running economy. And because running economy is important, it improves your performance. So you kind of reverse engineer it. And so the way in which you should really be using strength exercises is to get the nervous system and the muscle stronger. And so if you go back to sort of the, the basic definition of strength, it's general or maximal strength. It's the maximum amount of force that a muscle or a muscle group can produce during a specific, a specific movement. And so if we use similar movements to the sport, i.e. we're going through triple flexion, ankle, knee and hip, triple extension patterns at the ankle, knee and hip, mm-hmm. in exercises like we mentioned before, you don't really need to be doing very many repetitions to drive a change in strength. And so we know from quite a large body of research that you can get stronger. For, for This is for a novice or um, an, an un, unstrength-trained athlete. Uh, something around sort of eight to ten repetitions. And mm-hmm. so usually with an athlete that just is just starting out strength training, I'll usually be about eight repetitions because it gives them enough repetitions to work on the movement skill. So it gives them some practice and to get habitual good technique. Yeah. But it doesn't fatigue them. Like they're not they're not getting into any kind of metabolic fatigue, um, which is is going to start stepping away from the strength adaptation that I'm looking to drive. Um, and then to answer your question, finally, so with, with people that are a bit more familiar with, with strength, I, I typically wouldn't go that high. Um, like I generally work anything between about three repetitions and, yeah, about eight repetitions, depending upon what I want out of the exercise. Um, and so that sounds quite low to a lot of runners. But yeah. when, you, when you stress that the important bit is the quality of the movement and trying to drive changes in the nervous system and the muscular system, you need some sort of load there in order to get that kind of adaptation. Um, and the other really quick thing that I'll mention is, again, there's, there's quite a lot of scientific evidence to show that we don't need to train to repetition failure. And so if I'm doing six repetitions, for example, my form doesn't start to break down on the sixth repetition and I'm sort of struggling to stand up from, um, from the rep because the load's so high and I've taken myself to the point of exhaustion. Um, like that, We know that isn't required. And so you can stop a couple of repetitions short with good form and good technique and actually still drive, well, if anything, it's slightly more strength adaptation than if you'd gone to repetition failure. And so you don't need to be getting runners to, um, to the point where they're, they're finishing the set and form's breaking down and, and, uh, and they're, they're kind of squeezing out the last few inches of, of uh, the range of movement. Um, so hopefully that's covered everything around no. that way. No, and yeah, it's, it's um, totally in agreement as well. We use a reps and reserve model for our athletes. So we usually have them working within, you said three to eight. We usually It's usually about four to six um, with two reps in reserve. Very rarely mm-hmm. go out of that. And we definitely don't work to maximum, like for one rep maximums or even three rep maximums. Even when we say find a heavy 
four reps or something, we still say you've got like one rep left just yeah. to keep the auto regulation. So that to keep the athlete aware that like you should still have something left in the tank and you shouldn't be maxing out. So yeah. To emphasize that movement quality. To emphasize. Yeah. Movement, yeah. movement quality. I think um, a point that I wanted to bring up from your book and emphasize and add on to what you said is that strength training actually um, teaches your body how to recruit muscle fibers better as well. Um, when they're under fatigue so you, a lot of people especially runners they talk a lot about slow twitch and fast twitch muscle fibers so strength training in the rep ranges that you mentioned and good strength and conditioning actually teaches your body to recruit those muscle fibers better mm. so, and that's, yeah that's a really important point because it's probably one of the main mechanisms that running economy improves because if you've got, I'm doing something with my hands here for the list. <laughs> if, if, <laughs> if your maximal strength is here, so this this is your current ceiling, and you become stronger, so it raises by I don't know twenty percent over a period of a few months. the The relative amount of force that you've got to produce during your running stride hasn't really changed very much. Um, but in terms of your maximum strength, it has, and so therefore you're recruiting like a lower percentage of, of your maximum. If that makes sense. Yeah. And that's probably one of the reasons why your body ends up using less energy for the same level of work. And so therefore you can speed up or it just feels a bit easier. Um, and that's probably why performance improves. Yeah. And even with something as simple as a bodyweight exercise, like Laura has been getting me to do this Pilates movement where I lay on my back, um, keep my legs straight and then touch, a, keep my legs straight and touch a ball. It's, that's basically teaching your hip flexor to move against gravity forward and keep, under core control, and keep core activated that is then you know your body is then if it gets good at that stepping forward moving your hip flexor forward while you're already in the momentum of running is piss easy it's just being stronger yeah. than the demands of your activity isn't yeah. it? it reduces your risk of injury that's a, eventually what the whole thing comes down to it, it might seem this how can this improve my running but it's like it's improving your skill beyond what you need to run yeah. And then if you can do that, then yeah. you run so much better. And yeah. and so another point in your book, there's this overemphasis in running on training the heart and lungs, which is important. If you don't have the aerobic capacity to run a marathon, then obviously you've got a problem. But you have to condition your muscles and your tendons and your tissues to be able to cope, not only to cope with that marathon, but if you really want to hedge your bets, to be able to cope with more than the marathon. <clears throat> Um, so that when you run the marathon, your body is in your CNS. Everything is like I can totally cope with this, and cope with the demands of fatigue. So yeah, that's a that's a forty five minute introduction and why strength and training is is good for you. We get um, into the podcast now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's um. I think, but we wanted to keep it simple, didn't we? Because it's it is a complex topic and especially no one knows this yeah. more than you once you get into the weeds and getting to master's phd level where you're cutting into muscle fibers and looking at changes in lactate amounts and that sort of thing it can seem really intimidating but if you want it at its core you're training your muscles to cope with more than what running is and will demand of them yeah would you say the same yeah yeah so um do it that's that's <laughs> that's that's our, that's our uh, that's our big conclusion from um, from strengthening. Yeah, the main message. Um, yes, that's our. Yeah, that's one of our missions. So yeah, it's been it's been actually fantastic to talk to you, Rich. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks a lot for having us on. I've really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, I've really enjoyed it too. And I would really recommend, especially because it's it, it's written in quite accessible language and it goes over in far more detail than we could cover on this podcast, um, Rich's book, which we'll link to in the show notes, Strength and Conditioning for Endurance Runners. There's, um, there's example exercises and movement screens and more information on everything that we've talked about here. So, um, and the Kindle yeah, version is, um, is, is really good with the pictures and links and that yeah. sort of thing. Would really recommend it. So, um, thanks for coming on, Rich. Hopefully, we'll see you at a running show in the near future, and, and we're definitely going to hold you to coming up to Loughborough and um, checking You're out. Welcome anytime at all, guys, and I can show you around the British Athletics High Performance Centre and Power Base and even the labs if you want to have a biopsy or something. Oh, <laughs> um, I think Laura would absolutely would, yeah, love that. So, yeah. Out over that. Yeah, so, but, um, but yeah, thanks again, Rich, and um, we'll let you know when the episode's out. And, um, yeah, have a great rest of your day. Great. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks, Rich. Bye.